The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I've begun a series of talks on uh, what in the tradition is called right effort or energy. And uh, it's a fun topic. I like it because it so much of our life is defined by making effort or having energy. And so many of our problems probably come down to the sense that we don't have the energy to do what we want to do, what we think we should do, or we do have the energy, but we shouldn't be doing what we're doing with the energy that we do have. So, and you know, a lot of our, a lot of our time is spent consuming various kinds of drugs to have energy or to come off of having a lot of energy. So last week I talked about this principle in practice that the Buddha brought up or mentioned in his last comment before he died, this word apamada or vigilance, heedfulness. So the Buddha uh, strongly emphasized the importance of being heedful. Are you looking for a mat or? <laughs> oh. So the Buddha mentioned this word apamada or vigilance, and uh, not just at the end of his life, but all the way through his 45 years of teaching. But it's, you know, we have to be careful about the concept of effort or efforting, because basically we're all really good at efforting. So last week I spent a lot of time talking about, and then we discussed how effort has to be born from wisdom. We have to have some sense of what we're trying to do in life, some sense of aspiration to know how to direct our energy, our efforting. So tonight I want to talk about how love can be one of the ways to organize, to get to know and to strengthen and to uh, really build a life around this capacity we have to love. And, uh, you know, some some circles, love as passion, the energy to do, it sort of gets a bad name. But really, it just comes down to being alive, because that's the definition of being alive. Being alive is having this upwelling of energy to do, to engage the moment, to respond, to refrain, to step forward, to speak up, to listen. This is all the natural force, life force manifesting. So there's no way around it. I mean, anybody who imagines that a spiritual path is about somehow being afraid of that life energy, I think it's. Uh, I, I think that happens. You know, we. We make a lot of mistakes with our life energy. You know, we get caught up in neediness or greediness or aggression or aversion. 
And so then we mistrust our life energy, and, and in a sense we conceptualize that, oh my God, the spiritual path must be about, you know, withdrawing, not being a human being like that. I don't know where this came from, but see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. You know, it's like, put me in a sensory deprivation tank and, you know, lock it. <laughs> you know, as long as I'm not seeing or experiencing anything, then I'm safe. But, you know, put me in the world and I make a lot of mistakes. So we are in the world and, you know, being in the world, we're motivated. We have this energy to do, to respond, to react, to think, to speak. So it's not about energy. It's about just understanding the dynamic, that we can't get away from it. We can't get away from engagement. So it's about happily and especially wisely participating with the life that we have. And how do we do this? So here's a particular passage that I'd like us to work with for the next couple of weeks. It's a quote from one of the more famous uh, quotes from the Buddhist teachings, where he says, it is in this way that we must train ourselves. So that first part is useful just to know that. As Ajahn Sumedho says, it isn't, the path isn't about following the heart, it's about training the heart. So the Buddha, again, he's saying, it is in this way that we must train ourselves. So basically, we're recognizing that the inclinations that we have aren't necessarily trustworthy. Just because our heart, our, our habit energy is inclined in a particular way, doesn't mean it's skillful. And then he goes on to explain. It is in this way that we must train ourselves, by liberation of the self through love. So there's a particular training, and it's liberating through love, liberating the self, going beyond self-centeredness through love. And uh, so this is an important statement. So the problem is the sense of self, is the concept, the construction of self. And this is a concept that we're regenerating, reconstructing moment by moment. Every time I have an experience, to some degree, I'm projecting. I'm Part of that experience is the projection that it's happening to me. I need to respond. And we're doing this all the time. It's happening so regularly that we don't notice it. So if I do notice it, then as a self, I might want to do something about it. But see, that's... That doesn't help. It's like wanting to get rid of the construction of self is just another self-centered activity. So the Buddha is very clever. We're really fortunate to have wise people like the Buddha and all the men and women who have developed this practice over the centuries. Because they tell us if you you know a fro a full frontal assault doesn't work because it just is going to come out of the same place. We're basically recreating the same problem. We think we're addressing the problem, but we recreate it. And this is why it's so tricky. In other words, as human beings, we've been trying to be happy for a long time. But every time we try to be happy, we tend to recreate the conditions for stress. 
and and uh, anxiety and reactivity. So then, fortunately, we stumble upon some people who have some wisdom, and they say the way you liberate yourself is through love, or you could say mindfulness too, because here I think what the Buddha means by love is this wholeheartedness. I mean, when we think about love, even conventionally, I love you, or I love a hamburger right now, or I love... It it always implies some kind of real connection. You know, like the meeting of that, like me meeting the food that I want. I mean, even that superficial sense of love has to do with a real connection, a meeting, a coming together. Desire meeting the object of desire. So, if we're going to liberate the self, because the mind is under the gravitational pull of this concept of self, you know, in a way, we've gotten ourselves confused, and then in this confusion, the sense of self offers a solution, except that the solution comes with endless confusion. <laughs> you know, it's a trap. But at least there's a voice saying, I've got the answer. <laughs> Even though that voice doesn't know what it's doing, it at least is telling us it does. So we gravitate toward it. We gravitate toward self-centered activity because it's what we know. It's what gets reinforced. So this other instruction is to liberate to be liberated, to be freed from that orientation, from the gravitational pull of selfing through love, through the practice of full commitment, or you could say surrender, or intimacy, or mindfulness. A moment of mindfulness, a moment of full loving presence, an unconditional surrender, it's all about dropping everything, including dropping selfing, dropping any self-centered drama about the moment. We can't be, we can't have a moment of mindfulness with the in-breath, or mindfulness of the hearing, hearing, or mindfulness of the body sitting, or mindfulness of some movement of emotion. We can't be fully present and be thinking, this is happening to me. They're two different things. So if we have the thought, this is happening to me, then that's a thought. In terms of mindfulness, we'd recognize, oh, thinking. But that this is happening to me, that this, that's a different experience. If we're mindful of that, then it's fears like this, or happiness is like this. It is in this way that we must train ourselves, by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love, we will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. So this is really the Buddha outlining, outlining the training. So first he defines, he states, you know, we need to train the mind. We can't just let things be. We can't just follow the heart because we'll always get what we've always gotten before. So if we want something different, we have to actually train the heart. We actually have to do something different than what we've always been doing. So mostly, we're distracted and uh, basically lost in one reactive pattern after another, overlapping reactive patterns, 
all basically being born out of a, a notion of, of self apart from the world, self apart from everything else, right? Doesn't that seem true for you that when you do notice your reactive patterns that if you, if you have the sense of looking carefully, you'll notice that all of our reactive patterns have a, a sense of somebody like me, you know, there's some self-involvement in our reactive patterns. Like even if you have a pattern now that, oh, this is so great, this talk is so great, or just the opposite, this talk is, I don't get what it's about, or it's stupid. If we look, we'll see that even those seemingly ordinary responses to the moment involve a somebody. And again, we don't want to get upset because that's just somebody getting upset. Oh, I shouldn't be doing... So reacting to our patterns of reactivity isn't the answer. What's the answer? Well, the Buddha tells us. By liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. Right? So we'll train the mind. We'll be willing to start over. We get distracted and we start over by practicing connecting. That's like connecting with the breath is an act of love. It's an act of kindness. To fully open, receive the in-breath. You know, just like, you know, if we saw, you know, we were walking through some beautiful woods in April or sometime in the spring and walking on soft ground so we weren't making much sound and we turn a corner and there 20 feet away was a mother deer giving birth to a fawn you know we would be so open and receptive in that moment you know we'd relax we'd be like 100% sensitivity there'd be no soft there so to speak just awareness feeling so grateful to have stumbled upon that. And this is a kind of love. You know, to be intimate, to allow the moment to unfold, to be willing to drop patterns of reactivity or control. You know, just like how easy it would be to ruin it by, like, thinking, oh, God, I wish I brought my video cam or... <laughs> You know, wait till I tell. And this is what we do. I mean, we laugh because we know this pattern. I mean, how many times have you been in a beautiful spot? Not really there at all. This first struck me when, right after college, I took four months and backpacked out west. And this is uh, 1980, and there I was in the high Sierras, just incredibly beautiful. And I just noticed how much I was thinking about my girlfriend. And it's like, it was just astounding to me. And in like a really powerful way, I was just kind of starting to open to, you know, these, this way of thinking, viewing life. And it just, it was astounding that here I was in one of the most amazing places, and I wasn't here at all. I was just in my thoughts. And how incredibly seductive that was. And I also had a sense, too, of the, uh, it's like almost because it was so beautiful and 
hard to grasp, you know, just that much space. You know, when you're up high, you have a lot of blue <laughs> around you. You know, it's like uh, the mind doesn't know what to do with all that space. And sort of like gets frightened by all that space. So it goes to something that feels more familiar, something contracted. Like, what am I going to do about this, you know, relationship or whatever, this job, this body, this life? So we have this training. We will develop love. We will practice it. We'll make it both a way and a basis. And this is interesting, too. A way meaning like it gives some meaning to life. It tells us what to do. We always know what to do then. Well, in any moment, you know, can we open? Can we be interested? So part of being intimate, part of being mindful, is to actually be interested in the next breath, in the next step, in the next conversation. I mean, think about how many conversations that we very quickly shut off. We close the heart. I mean, we may go through the motions for another five, ten minutes or hour, but we're not really there. We don't want to be there. We don't respect the interaction. And in a way, it's a deadening experience, but the, it's not deadening because the person's boring. It's deadening because we've closed our heart off. We're not really there. We've shut our heart to life. We basically shut off the switch. And then, of course, we feel deadened. And, you know, we do this more and more of the time. Like even that example I gave of backpacking and thinking about something else. You know, I've, uh, I've basically, you know, we don't see it this way, but we're energetically pushing away the experience that's happening and we're energetically reaching towards something, concocting something like our problems. When we think about our problems, we actually have to concoct them in the mind. And then we have to claim them, you know, sort of energetically grasp them. And then no wonder it feels so deadening. So then what do we do? We try harder. You know, we think again and we try to sort of elaborate, to make the thought seem relevant, seem important. But it can never really be relevant because it's just a thought. It's not actually what's happening. Now, I'm not saying that a thought isn't an activity, but the content of a thought isn't what's happening in the moment. Do you understand the difference? Because if we were aware, if there I was, you know, walking in the high Sierras, and then all of a sudden aware, being here, thinking this thought, that would be a very enlivening moment. It was, because I had that happen, like I mentioned. It was really enlivening to realize, to have that insight that I was afraid to be here, that somehow my mind couldn't just be here. And so in the moments where I did recognize that, I was very alive. And in the moments when I was caught in my thoughts, it didn't feel good at all. It felt contracted and deadening. So we're making it a way of life, and it becomes a refuge for us, as he says, he goes on to say, and make it a basis, both a way and a basis. Take a stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. So here the Buddha is talking about, you know, we're creating a new habit. But this is a different kind of habit it's like uh, I was talking to somebody today 
about this teaching the Buddha gave. Many of you know this. It's one of the more famous teachings about the raft. And so the Buddha talks about the teachings, the instructions he's given over the years of his teaching. It's like a raft. We need to cross this flood. You've got to remember that mostly the Buddha taught in this huge floodplain of the Ganges River. Right? So this is a real <laughs> reality for those people, you know, probably regularly, I don't know how often, but maybe every 10 years, you know, villages would be swept away by floods. And, uh, and yes, you know, getting to see your relatives certain times of the year was really impossible with the flood, if the water was really high and rushing. So this image is really potent of the teachings are like building a raft and using the raft to get across the flood. And then the Buddha said, but once you've crossed the flood, are you going to pick up the raft and carry it around? No. The purpose of the raft was to get across the water. Once you've gotten across the water, you don't need the raft. So we need this, we need this method of mindfulness. We need to kind of develop this orientation. Basically, we're, we're uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, as ordinary human beings, we've got a lot of this energy to do. You know, we have this, you know, it's basically our survival instinct, except because we get, uh, we become psychological beings more than we are physical beings, or certainly as much as we are physical beings. You know, a lot of the survival instinct is just about surviving as a person. You know, we want people to respect us and to belong and to feel empowered and to feel like uh, we contribute. You know, this is part now for us, part of that survival mechanism. And so we need to, uh, we need this raft, basically, so that we're taking this energy to survive and we're kind of directing it in this particular way toward intimacy. We're seeing that, you know, as we practice, as we learn from our practice, we're seeing that being open, being mindful, being intimate, this moment, and I think it's appropriate to call it love, to be in love, to be undefended with the in-breath, with the out-breath, with the body, with the sounds, with life, things as they are, this is the new way. You know, this is like our new relationship. We give ourselves over to this. We train in this. We set it in motion. It's like we're crafting, we're putting together a new life, a whole new like purpose. So instead of storing up wealth, or storing up friendships, you know, interesting friends who like me, or, you know, interesting kitchen gadgets, or whatever our obsession might be. Or just knowledge, you know, some people, they just want to know a lot. They want to be able to do the New York Times crossword puzzle, at least some of the times. You know, whatever we feel, you know, gives us meaning, well, now we're sort of deriving meaning from this path from like understanding the instructions and how to build a raft, understanding the purpose of the raft to get across the flood, understanding that the raft is just a raft. So this is our purpose in life. Now we still may be a parent and we still go to work on Monday or whenever you go to work and we still take care of things that need to be taken care of. We take care of our body. 
But all of this now is directed into the context of developing intimacy. And see, any moment will do. We don't need a, to be at common ground or to be on retreat or to be doing our morning sit. Any moment is fine for developing intimacy, practicing this wholeheartedness so that we're, it's just becoming a way of life. So when we're in conversation with somebody, they don't need to know what we're doing, but what we're really doing is practicing being undefended, practicing being interested. We're, we're sort of relying on this basic instruction that this is relevant. I can respect this moment. I don't need to feel like the moment that's really relevant is some other moment out there, you know, when this conversation is done and I get on with my life, but to somehow, and you know, and of course part of this moment might be the disengagement, like the elegant ending of this interaction. Sometimes it's not so elegant, but still we're showing up, we're relaxing, we're trusting, we're trusting being intimate as a way of life and letting everything else fall away. Like all the other agendas we have, we just assume that if I pour my heart into being intimate, I'll take care of my relationships, I'll become a good employee, I'll be able to do what needs to be done in life. It's like the one strategy that takes care of all the things that need to be done. But it's like, it's scary, because we feel like we've got to take care of all of those things. Like be vigilant of all those things. And so what we do is we basically do nothing well because we're spread thin. We feel as a person, as a self, I've got to be responsible for everything. I have to be responsible that all of you guys like me. You know, think what a burden that is. Like all the people we know, we're responsible to get them all to respect us, to respect me, to love me to treat me the way that I want to be treated. I mean, no wonder we feel exhausted. <laughs> it's so hard. It's, I mean, I find, you know, one of the real triggers for me is, you know, I get upset when people mistrust me, like somehow mistrust my motivation or <clears throat> mistrust, uh, somehow don't assume that I've thought deeply about something and, you know, think I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that, you know, that's like such a trigger for me. And so, what a burden it is to go through life, like trying, being tight, because I need people to respect me in a, in a particular way, or like me in a particular way, or think these thoughts about me. You know, each of us, we all do this in some fashion. And just to get a sense of what a burden that is. So, so much of our activities, so much of how our life energy flows is just a cause for stress. And we need to be willing to, you know, gradually abandon that as we develop confidence in this other way. So, I'll just read it one more time. It is in this way that we must train ourselves. By liberation of the self through love, we will develop love, we will practice it, we will make it both a way and a basis. Take a stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And these are some words from uh, Jack Hornfield in the book he wrote with Joseph Goldstein, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. 
And it's the section on the seven factors of enlightenment. And energy is one of those factors, so it's in that chapter. He says, do we want to be aware or not? Can we stand to open to it all? And will we have enough energy? There is a secret of practice and of life to learn here. The way energy works is just the opposite of what we fear. We are not like a battery that runs down. The more we open ourselves, the more our energy and effort and practice flow. We become a channel or a conduit for energy. This energy is the power of expansion and opening, not an energy of struggle. It is a power of the heart. If we are willing to bring a wholehearted effort to every aspect of our practice, the very effort itself brings more energy as we touch this great capacity within us. As one Zen master teaches, cut all your bargaining, just do it. Sounds like a Nike ad. But there's a really important principle here about, um, you know, and this is an experiment that we all want to do for the next few weeks. And we'll continue talking about energy and efforting for the next probably through December. So it'd be nice to hear directly what you're learning from your own reflection and practice in your life, in your sitting practice, in your daily life practice. So one of these principles to look at is to see that, you know, we do have the energy to approach life from the sense of self. So we need to make this effort to be intimate, which is abandoning our self-centered dramas because we, like I said earlier, we can't be caught up in our self-centered drama and opening wholeheartedly, relaxing into seeing clearly, being interested in things as they are, the moment, whatever's predominant. We can't do both. So it is going to take a lot of effort. But here's the principle that it's like a barometer for us. If in making this effort, we feel deadened, we feel burdened, things get heavier. It, we should wonder, like, am I doing my practice right? What's off? We should feel enlivened by the efforting that we're making. It, it's going to take tremendous effort because our habit is not to be intimate. Our habit is to be distracted, to be disconnected, to be caught in our thoughts about things. So it takes tremendous effort, vigilance. We're going to need to find clever ways to remind us to be intimate. Friends, the teachings, basically anything that works. But you want to notice this barometer. You want to kind of keep this barometer front and center. Am I feeling enlivened in the activity? You know, so when you're walking from your car to your office, or when you're driving home, or when you're preparing the meal, and you have, you know, you just remember, oh yeah, it's the practice of being intimate. Okay, and you, you sort of drop in. Now, just because I'm saying, you know, there's this barometer of feeling alive, it doesn't mean it will be pleasant. So you might drop, drop in, but there may be some fear there, but it's enlivening. It's like, dead need to be afraid and to not know it. But to be afraid and to know it is enlivening. It's like, oh. It's like, you know, you can be having a conversation and not really there with the person. And then you really drop in and you're really connecting. And all of a sudden you notice it, it gets intense very quickly. Like, oh, wow, this is life. There's a person here, you know. What do I think? What does he think? What's going to happen next? It's like the mystery of life, the whole 
unknown of it. It's just right there. And we, the heart feels full. It all of a sudden starts getting easier to be awake. But of course, as, it, as we feel more alive, it's going to trigger wanting to control it. The self-centeredness, the self-centered habits are going to get triggered. Because it's, it's relatively easy to relax and let things be when nothing special is happening. We're all alone. We're in bed. You know, We can sort of put down our self-centered defenses. But we're right in the middle of life, and it's unknown. You know, They get triggered. So there's a balance. That's why we practice in a safe way, right? We go to a quiet room where nobody's expecting any of anything from us. We sit in a comfortable way. We often close our eyes. We just gaze softly at the floor in front of us. And we practice being intimate so that we start learning the basic principles so we can do it you know, in places where it's not going to be so easy. I want to leave it here so that we have some time to check in with each other. We have about 20 minutes. It would be nice. A lot of you have been practicing for many years. So it would be nice to hear from people about moments of intimacy and how they came about and what you've learned gets in the way. And also, of course, any questions that you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Anybody have a moment of intimacy? How about now? (laughs) Yeah, Mona. Yeah, I think I think commitment is a really good word. And for some people, you know, that might be better than intimacy. You know, just can I commit to things as they are? Now, the thing about commitment, you know, let's use the sort of classic situation of committing to another person, because you know, it's sort of a huge metaphor in our culture. And of course, when we commit to another person, we've shut the door to everybody else. I mean, that's the point, right? And so that's not so easy to do, because what happens if this person isn't the one? I mean, he or she is here. They're available. There's some kind of chemistry. But I don't know if they're the one. So you know, I'm happy to commit tonight. But (laughs) tomorrow, who knows? (laughs) So and this is the same with this is the same, exactly the same principle in, in our practice. It's like. 
when when the breath is coming in, you know, well, yeah, I could commit to this breath, but maybe I should think this thought. Maybe I should. It's like there are many things we feel we might do with this moment, and to fully give ourselves, to give the heart, the mind over to this experience. That's basically we have to lose everything else. We have to give up everything else. So it, there's a kind of death in commitment. Because to really show up to this, everything else has to die. Everything else has to be let go of. Yeah. yeah. So this is why the practice is so hard. And this is why that habit we have of being distracted and scattered is so strong. Because we want to like cover all our bets. And in doing that, we lose our whole life, basically. Mm -hmm. Because we're trying to juggle all possibilities. We don't want to let go of any possibility. And so we're never really showing up to any particular moment because we're entranced by what might happen and we're you know, regretful about what did happen and wonder how it might have been different if we had done something differently in the past. So we're kind of out there in our thoughts about the past and the future and missing our life. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, um, you know, if we don't show up, we miss our life. If we're not mindful, we miss our life. Over and over. Yeah. And we have to relearn that that actually works in a safe way. You know, that's what formal daily sitting practice is all about. That's why there's such a strong emphasis, at least in the Buddhist tradition, about having that daily discipline as much as we possibly can. So that we're, we're recognizing, you know, in our own feeble way, sitting, returning, starting over again with the breath or with body or with the present moment as it is, we're learning that it's relevant, that it's worthwhile showing up. It's worthwhile dying to everything else, letting go of everything else in order to be present. But we'll never, it's like if we can sit on the fence forever, like we can appreciate intellectually, oh, there may be something to these teachings. But the point is, is to get off that fence and to really see if there's something to these teachings, really put them into practice, and really kind of recognize the capacity to be intimate, to love the moment, you know, to give the heart over, the mind over to the moment, to surrender completely, to die. And, of course, to be reborn. I mean, that's the thing. You know, what love, the energy that we're talking about is this rebirth. You know, when we let go of everything, we tap into some energy that's beyond this kind of energy of fear and energy of greed that mostly we orient around. That's the gravitational pull. It's the only energy we know is the energy that arises out of greed. Oh, if I win the lottery, or if I connect with this person, or if I get for Christmas this electronic gadget that I really want, you know, I'll be so cool and happy. And, you know, there's some life energy there, but, you know, it's pretty feeble. And it requires constant caretaking. Like, we got to rally the energy. Oh, yeah, that would be good, you know. Oh, I could do this with it. Or, you know, we have to kind of massage it and keep it alive, like stoking the fire. Because it doesn't really have, it's like, it's just froth. You know, we've got to kind of keep whipping up. 
and it has a tendency to disappear. And then when we've beaten it and there's nothing left to beat, you know, then we created some froth over here. You know, oh, I shouldn't be so attached. I'm so, you know. <laughs> you know, it's amazing what we can do to create froth, you know, some life energy, including hating ourselves. It's another way to create some life energy. You know, I'm the bad person. And it's all, you know, various neurotic patterns. <laughs> oh, woe are we. <laughs> so somebody tells a story about intimacy and natural joy and feeling alive. Yeah, Lori, thanks. <laughs> the pressure's on, Lori. <laughs> choose a seat and think, oh, oh, maybe I should sit there. Oh, maybe I should sit there. Or I didn't choose a walking cat. Oh, maybe I should walk this. Maybe I should walk this. Maybe I should walk over there. I didn't do any of that all day long. And it was such a blessed relief. It was like it was no effort. Or it was like all the other things died. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. it was just, it was wonderful. Yeah, and that's another, like that could be another way of talking about the barometer. So the one way I said, you know, we make this effort not to be distracted, but to remember this possibility of being intimate. And I mentioned that, so the barometer would be feeling enlivened by that, that sort of surrender showing up. Or another thing, another way to sort of recognize it or to practice is this quality of effortlessness. It's like, that's the same thing of feeling enlivened. It's like life is happening on its own, that the energy to do what's next is already embedded in the moment. It's just a matter of allowing it, you know, allow it to move freely. So like we show up and we feel, oh my God, I have to have a conversation with somebody. But maybe the energy to have the conversation is already there. And then when the energy ends, the conversation will naturally end because there's no more energy there for the conversation. And something else will happen. And so this effortless that you kind of point to, Laurie, I think is a really good thing to pay attention to, like both to notice when it's there, when there's just a feeling of life happening on its own, but also we can uh, we can evoke it in a sense by just remembering that, that maybe, maybe this retreat day or maybe this interaction, maybe there's the energy for it to happen is already there. So I'm just going to drop the ownership of it, and just see if I can engage this person, connect with this person, let, if this is all can happen on its own. Let's see. Like, we think, oh my God, tomorrow's Monday, and I've got so much to do. But why not have a different attitude, just as an exploration, and see if Monday can happen on its own? Do you need to own all of your activity in order to do what you think you have to do? Or will it happen naturally? Like somebody cuts in front of you on the freeway. Do you need to own the responsibility of having to put on the brake? Or will the brake be pressed down naturally? You know, when somebody asks you a question, do you have to feel like, oh, I've got to come up with an answer? You know, will an answer just start coming out of your mouth? So this is a, what I mentioned before about projecting the self. Yes, Cindy. Maybe a little louder so people can all hear. The, the bird and I, um, I've had to put my garden to bed and I've 
Yeah, that's a perfect example. And it teaches us, too, about that a lot of the resistance is really up front. And it's just a matter of going through that, that sort of the face, the thin veneer of resistance, right, so which can be... Because once we challenge, see, if we just see on the surface, unchallenged, it looks so real, that voice. But if we just... You know, with the, what's the attitude? Well, the attitude is love. Remember, it's really like uh, Mona mentioned, being committed to showing up, to just taking the next step. If we think about 300 bulbs, we won't do it. But if we just think about the next step, just the activity of getting the hay out of the back of the car, like that's because being intimate isn't about the whole project. It's about one moment, and that's the that's the deal. And, uh, yeah, and everything just flows from that. But that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Yes, I don't know your name. Kate. Kate. Um, so I'm thinking of your story. Like, so if you're present in that moment and what's showing up is sort of a resistance, mm-hmm. how do you determine whether to sort of respect that resistance? I mean, say you're about to marry somebody. Yeah. Or to take it as something that surface it's it's like how do you know when to respect it or take it as kind of an offense? Well, you you do respect it. You know, you have to you can't avoid it. So you have to you have to really feel the resistance. You have to see, and is it a thin veneer? Or as you get closer to the uh, resistance, you know, as you really let it make an impact, feel it in the heart, maybe it has a kind of reverberation, like a voice of wisdom, that you know, as you open to it, in a way, as you unpack that resistance, or let's call it fear, then it's like it has some real depth in the sense like uh, layer after layer of regret having been here, done this, and suffered the consequences of this lack of clarity. And, and, you know, you're just really seeing something that needs to be seen. So this is the great thing about intimacy. It's going to reveal everything that's there. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to all of a sudden have perfect psychic knowledge of what's right, what we should do, or what we shouldn't do. But we're going to basically have every bit of wisdom that's available by this practice of intimacy. So you're absolutely right. The resistance isn't always thin. You know, sometimes resistance really is a kind of a deep and resonant experience. And so when we open to it, it doesn't just disappear, but what it does is it opens to this wise voice. That's what pain is. You know, the memory of having made a lot of mistakes as we open to that, you know, whether you call it regret or shame, if we open to it honestly, it's like wisdom. I mean, this is how we transmute past mistakes into something really wholesome, as we see that, well, I don't have to do it again, because this 
pain is like living wisdom that will kind of keep me from repeating unwholesome ways of being. So we can actually be grateful for that voice. That pain is like an old friend, and we're grateful because it's telling us, don't go there, honey. There's there's a better way. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Good question. Still a little time left for one or two more comments. Yeah, Tom. In this same regard, it's to me like comparing daily. Being the older, retired man now, it's what taking a nap is like a nice idea awful lot of the time. <laughs> I find, I say nearly daily, that I've got things to do. I've got this sense of being just dog tired. I can't really move. I'm just tired. I need to lay down and take a nap. And um, I was reading so interesting today, a validator, she had her back in her book there. She made some comment about she knows that she only has so many moments left to live in her life and she doesn't want to spend those moments like he's taking a nap. She wants to be doing stuff. But it's real hard for me to, to push through that. And that, that being a feeling of tiredness and just I can't, I can't go up and do this work right again. But if something happens and I don't get to go lay down on the couch and I just kind of keep working uh, because I'm pushing myself through that point, but I just think, man, it's always kind of amazing how you go through it. You don't, yeah. you don't like feel like you need to lay down anymore or whatever. But, but when that feeling comes up, it, for me, it's just a real flaw. I mean, I, I don't, I'll give in to it. Yeah. That, those voices are very believable. And, and the thing is, when we have a strong thought, you know, that I need to lie down, the body and the mind reflect each other. So the body will mirror back that, the content of that, those thoughts. And then the, the feeling then reinforces the thought, you know, so it's, it is very difficult. Sometimes it's good to, to just sort of push through, like, well, okay. Like sometimes you can promise yourself, well, okay, I'll lie down, but let me just do this one thing. You know, so you really you're not saying I'm going to do all these things. Okay, you have the right to take a nap, but let's just do this one thing. Then let's just do this one thing, and you can just see. But another one way is also to lie down, not necessarily on a couch, but something less comfortable. And you know, if you're really exhausted, okay, here's your opportunity, and to really let. It's another way of practicing dying. So we really. You know, basically, what exhaustion is is the mind wants to disappear. You know, we're exhausted from having to own all of these things. You know, be responsible for being happy, for example, and we're just exhausted. So we just let that all die. We sort of let the mind disappear. It's almost I don't know psychologically if it's the same, but the sense I have when I practice this way is like wanting to touch what's called deep sleep where the sense of self, I think, disappears momentarily, because you're not dreaming where there's still a sense of self, that that part just disappears for a moment. But literally just touching it and then rebounding out. right? And so then you don't want to get stuck in one of the dream states. 
So you want to go right into unconsciousness, right to deep sleep, and then rebound right out. And this is what you call a power nap, you know, or what people call power nap. But it really works, and it's actually a, I think, it's something that starting in kindergarten, and you know, I did, I don't know, I'm sure people of my generation, you did it too. You know, we had a little mat you brought to kindergarten, and you lay down there with everyone else. I mean, this should be something that gets trained and then instituted all the way through life, where people do these little power naps, and we really learn how to die, that sense of self dies for a moment, and then we're reborn, we feel fresh. And so you might experiment with that too. Um, but if we're too comfortable, then we, what we do is we want to indulge in that dreamy state where we're semi-conscious or semi-unconscious and we're kind of just sort of in some kind of trance, sleep, dream state. And we can stay there for quite a long time. And that is a waste of time because basically we're living another life, a fantasy life, with all the stresses, but our body is immobile and, and actually it's not healthy and we're not... And then we still have this life, you know, to deal with when we wake up. So generally, that's not so useful, you know, to spend uh, too much time there. I think we should probably leave it here. Uh, so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. It's always good to just assume that whatever we need to remember will somehow be reverberating somewhere or be reborn at the right moment in the mind. Just appreciate the silence for a few seconds. And to remember our deep aspiration to live this life for the benefit of others. So we're practicing developing intimacy as a deep way of caring for our own life and a deep way of caring for all beings so that our life is a cause for peace, for wisdom and compassion in all directions. May this be so. Thanks again. I do have a few announcements. So we have a string of...